Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from Russia, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell also from the United States. Starting off with Russia, the ongoing fallout of Vladimir Putin's Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has led to a serious impasse in Russian political life. This is something that is often missed by the United States media, which generally treats Russia as a sort of Putin monolith. This is something that the United States media generally does when it comes to the leaders of countries that are not, you know, full democracies or republics. You know, it imagines that the dictator is in 100% total complete control of literally everything. Instead, now we're seeing a lot of more interesting activity going on inside of Russia. Specifically, there are rumors that so-called um, ultra-patriots, super-patriots, hyper-patriots, you know, whatever they're going to call themselves, are organizing within Russia. What this means is that these are extreme right-wing figures in Russia's military and in its government that see Putin as a liability, and they see his leadership essentially as a failure recently. They are being led and aided by members of the Russian business community who, again, don't like long protracted wars and, you know, sanctions and stuff like that. Instead, they want a stable and powerful country, right? This means that it's possible that there could be some sort of right-wing coup in Russia that I, I, I like, I really can't imagine a worse scenario, honestly, uh, because that means that a quasi-fascistic force could get control of the second largest arsenal of nuclear weapons in the world. Um, that would be a disaster. Moving on to Brazil and updates regarding the, at this point, one month since the attempted coup by Jair Bolsonaro's supporters, their storming of the Brazilian government offices in Brasilia, we now know that Gimorais, the leader of the effort to block this coup and also a member of the Brazilian Supreme Electoral Tribunal, says that he was contacted by Bolsonaro's supporters about potential involvement in the coup, but he didn't respond. He made a joke saying that he considered their attempts to be farcical and, you know, said that they were, you know, it sounded like it was coming from a comedy troupe, essentially. We also know that a hacker who has gained access to hundreds of Brazilian authorities was also trying to hack the phone, uh, that is the, the, the like pin and everything, of Jim Rice. He was trying to steal information from him. Fortunately, he was unsuccessful. Famously, though, this hacker, whose name is Delgatti, uh, was extremely successful in other hacking attempts. He is primarily known for being the person who broke a lot of the Lava Jato or car wash scandals, like more lurid and personal details. This means that Gimarais and other members of the Lula government, and, you know, just like the government of Brazil, now that Lula is president, are under attack again, and they are under attack by people who are trying to undermine the leadership of Lula. Speaking of those who are trying to undermine Lula's leadership, the top brass, the top leaders of the Brazilian military seem to still be siding with Lula. They are trying to smooth things out, trying to, you know, make amends for the fact that they worked with Bolsonaro, even though he was trying to make this coup, right? Lula is trying to smooth things out with them, right? Because, you know, he knows the dangers of having the military top brass not on your side. However, Lula's party and Lula's government are also combating the armed forces sort of at a lower level. 
Remember in previous weeks I talked about Lula and his government getting rid of members of the armed forces who were sympathetic to Bolsonaro or who participated potentially in planning some of the coup activities on January 8th last month. Those efforts are ongoing and it's because they're finding more and more collaboration with the terrorists, you know, with the people who are plotting this coup on the part of lower level people in the military. The more they look for this, the more that they're probably going to find. As a reminder, for those of you listening in the United States or who pay attention to United States politics, we have intentionally avoided any of this type of investigation into the January 6th attempted coup in the United States in 2021, right? We, we, we tried to avoid talking about any of this stuff. Brazil is instead taking it very seriously and getting right down to it. Finally, in Brazil, it is looking possible that Flavio Bolsonaro, who is Jair Bolsonaro's son, so the son of the previous right-wing president, uh, who is actually incidentally in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, incidental fact, Flavio Bolsonaro is currently a senator in Brazil, and it's possible that he is going to be created as the leader of the opposition in the Brazilian Senate. This might mean a quick path to power, or at least a path to candidacy opposing Lula in the next Brazilian presidential electoral cycle. Moving on to the United States, there have been massive leaks regarding the cell phones and other accounts of Alex Jones, the host and owner and proprietor of InfoWars, which, you know, sort of alternates between being like a creepy conspiracy theory home and being an outwardly fascist propaganda organization. Alex Jones' texts and other information were unintentionally leaked by his lawyers in a case regarding his denial that the Sandy Hook massacre, that is the massacre of dozens of young children, he denied that this massacre took place. And in his refusal of this, there was a, there was a case and his lawyer accidentally leaked the entire contents of his correspondence to the opposing counsel. This means that we now have a lot of information about Alex Jones and what he's been saying to different people. We now know his connections to the Proud Boys, uh, that is the largest and arguably one of the most dangerous fascist organizations in the United States today. We know the contents of his conversations with Gavin McGinnis, the founder of the Proud Boys, Roger Stone, one of the biggest collaborators with the Proud Boys, and a regular go-between between the Proud Boys and the Trump administration. Biggs, another leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario, the uh, the main leader of the Proud Boys after Gavin McGinnis stepped down. In a sense, we, we know that he was corresponding with them. We know that he was working with them. We know that he was talking to them. They were specifically conspiring to help uh, the Proud Boys build up Alex Jones's son, Rex, as a right-wing male supremacist influencer. We also see from these texts Alex Jones's connections to the significantly more successful and unfortunately significantly more mainstream Joe Rogan. Alex Jones got Joe Rogan, who by some measures is the most popular political or social commentator in the United States, uh, or arguably one of the most popular in the world. He got Joe Rogan to host Andrew Tate, the pro-rape influencer who is now in prison in Romania for human trafficking. So uh, this accidental leak by Alex Jones's lawyer is continuing to pay real informational dividends. It's really helping us understand Alex Jones's place in the right-wing media landscape. Apparently in the United States, the leader of the Atomwaffen has been arrested again, along with his partner, this time for planning to attack Baltimore area energy stations. This guy's name is Brandon Clint Russell. He was one of the founders of Atomwaffen, 
which it has, you know, one of these like stupid German names. It's a neo-Nazi terrorist organization that they're intentionally a terrorist organization as opposed to like a, a fascist militia group. The purpose of Atomwaffen was to acquire a bunch of weapons and explosives and put nuclear fissile material in those explosives in order to create dirty bombs. That's what the Atomwaffen was. They were broken up by the FBI and by other investigators before 2016, and so a lot of these people were in prison. Specifically, Russell himself was in prison for possession of explosives. There, he met this person, his girlfriend, Sarah Clendaniel, while they were in prison. Uh, she was in prison for robbing convenience store chains. The two of them planned these attacks while Russell was in Orlando, Florida, and while Clint Daniel was back at home in her native Baltimore. Specifically, their plan was to attack a series of energy substations and distribution points in the Baltimore area, and their intention was to call what they thought was going to be a cascading failure of the Baltimore area energy system. This is just another example of the right wing's recent attempt to use the collapse of the energy grid as a way to sow violence and, you know, civic unrest. This is not a new idea for the right wing. They've been planning and dreaming about this sort of stuff since the 80s and 90s. You know, there are very many popular right wing fictional accounts that start with, you know, attempts like these where right wing figures use the disruption of the power grid in order to establish their own little fiefdoms. The FBI got word of their plans through their correspondence with an FBI informant, and the plans and their sort of manifesto were written by Clint Daniel. They reference other successful right-wing terrorists, such as the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and Anders Brevik, who was responsible for the massacre of approximately 80 young people in his native Norway, these people being members of a social democratic that is a leftist political party. And lastly, in the United States, it's become apparent, based on analysis, that since Elon Musk took over Twitter, references to globalism, George Soros, and other such anti-Semitic dog whistles have doubled. This has to be because of Musk's new regime's perspective on anti-Semitism and the right wing and what he considers to be free speech. But remember, this free speech is almost exclusively given to people on the right wing. People on the left have been regularly silenced by Twitter, even just for noting this rise in right-wing speech. A lot of commentators are saying that tweets have been taken down or, like, you know, targeted by right-wing figures for, you know, claims that they violate Twitter's policies. People are having their accounts suspended and stuff like that. The point is that after Elon Musk bought Twitter, it became a much, much better home for the right-wing than it used to be before it was run by him exclusively. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about a man named Virgil Lee Griffin. He's the leader of one of the KKK chapters in North Carolina, and he was its leader when that branch committed what is now called the Greensboro Massacre. Griffin was born in North Carolina in 1944, and he joined the KKK at a young age, at 18, at one of the lowest points of the KKK's power. He became a small-time leader in a small-time situation. He was opposed to, quote-unquote, racial mixing. That's why he joined the KKK. 
He came to prominence when his branch of the group in Greensboro, North Carolina, which was at the time on an upswing due to the civil rights movement swelling the ranks of racist organizations in the United States. So he came to prominence when his branch of the KKK collaborated with the American Nazi Party in order to murder members of the Communist Workers Party in 1979. The Communist Workers Party were a Maoist extreme left organization, which was organizing people in Greensboro. Specifically, they were trying to organize members of a textile plant, which was predominantly employing black Americans at the time. And they were organizing them based on, you know, civil rights violations, based on labor rights violations, and specifically trying to draw attention to the major health risks that came with working in the plant. A lot of the people who were working with the Communist Workers Party at the time were physicians, you know, doctors, nurses. So the CWP was organizing in Greensboro and seeing what the situation there was, they planned a specific rally against the Klan, which was working with the police locally in order to suppress the rights and movements of black people and also the left in Greensboro. The Klan responded to this rally, which they were going to hold in November 1979. The Klan said that they were just going to go kill them. And so both groups were there uh, at this rally armed. The CWP was armed. Uh, they had handguns. The Klan and the Nazis arrived with shotguns and rifles. When the Klan and the Nazis arrived, they pretended that they were, you know, going to be like nonviolent and things like that. You know, they pretended that they weren't going to be engaging in any kind of violence. This was, of course, ridiculous. They arrived with a massive arsenal. And they also arrived under the nose of the police, who had an informant in the lead vehicle in the Klan caravan at the time. The police did nothing. And when the Klan and the Nazis arrived, they shot 15 people. They injured 10 of them and killed five, four of whom were members of the CWP. And again, several of those were physicians, you know, doctors, nurses. None of the members of the Klan or the Nazis were killed or shot at all in this exchange. A trial in 1980, uh, which sought, you know, some sort of charges against some of the Klansmen, acquitted them all. Griffin himself, the leader of the group who was present at this massacre, was not involved in this particular trial. This was a criminal trial. In 1984, there was a civil rights case involving nine Klan members, uh, you know, nine Klan members involved in this massacre. This one did include Griffin, and it also acquitted all of them on all possible charges. In both of these trials, which are the only ones that dealt with the Greenboro Massacre, the jury was entirely comprised of white people. Griffin continued KKK activity throughout his life, even as the prominence of the organization faded into the 1980s and 1990s. He organized against immigration and homosexual marriage. Later in life, he suffered from poor health, several heart attacks, several bypass surgeries, and he died this week in history, February 11th, 2009. So, Virgil Lee Griffin, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H I S T of the Right, and Fascism 15. All right. 
Thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.